Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Conor Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And in this episode, I have a reasonably full show for you, even though I did have that bridging episode just released. On the cinematic front, we have reviews of M. Night Shyamalan's new film, Old, and also the somewhat critically acclaimed Danish film, Riders of Justice. On the streaming front, we have a review of the low-budget Irish film directed by an Irish aristocrat, The Green Sea. And on Netflix, we have... David Iello's directorial debut, The Waterman, and also we have the Polish film, Primetime. And before I go any further, I do want to say that when I review that Netflix film from Poland, Primetime, I will fully be spoiling it. I do think, unfortunately, that this is one of those situations where in order to tell you exactly what I think of this film and how well it works, I need to go into full details about the full plot, including the ending. So I am going to fully spoil the Polish film on Netflix primetime. And if you want a simple review I mean whether you want to watch it before my review or not I would say that Primetime has some brilliant acting in it particularly from Bartosz Bielenia from the Polish film Corpus Christi but ultimately it's a relatively low meh and with that you know damning with faint praise review when I do fully go into that film I will be fully spoiling it But before then, I have other films to review. So, with reviews of Old, Riders of Justice, The Green Sea, The Waterman, and Primetime, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Old is the latest film from M. Night Shyamalan, who I'm sure needs no introduction. He is the master of the twist-ending movie, or at least was, and then, unfortunately, I think he started to believe his own hype. And there were more than a few wilderness years there in the middle. Although recently he has got back into the good graces of the critics and the public with such films as The Visit and Split, Personally speaking, I wasn't actually the hugest fan of Split. I do love the performance of James McAvoy. I think he's incredibly talented. But by the time the final revelation of Split came and, oh no, this is in the Unbreakable universe, 
and it is therefore a superhero movie, I'd already long checked out of the gratuitous way that mental health issues were portrayed in that film. It had lost me by the time it revealed it was in an entirely different genre. So I didn't like Split, and I think Glass was a great idea on paper, but the execution was awful. So, yeah, a mixed bag for M. Night Shyamalan, but he is back with this latest film, Old, which is actually an adaptation of a French graphic novel Sandcastle by Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters. And apparently, M. Night Shyamalan optioned the rights to this French graphic novel after his daughter gave it to him for his birthday, which is actually kind of sweet. And this is only the second time that M. Night Shyamalan has adapted somebody else's work for the big screen. The last time was The Last Airbender, so I think the less said about that, the better. <laughs> but in this particular film, Old, we are following a family played by Gail Garcia Bernal and Vicky Creeps, who are going on an exotic tropical holiday with their two small children six-year-old boy and 11-year-old girl, Nolan River and Alexa Swinton. They are told by the management at this luxurious hotel that there is a secret beach which the hotel is aware of and only very special guests get to visit there. So this family agrees to go to this remote secluded beach but in the morning when they get there, they realise that, oh, there's other families have been invited on this as well. Arrogant surgeon Rufus Sewell and his Instagram-obsessed trophy wife, Abby Lee, along with their five-year-old daughter and the grandmother. And once they get to the beach, they find that a semi-famous rapper, played by Aaron Pierre, is already there, and during the course of the day, a young couple played by Nikki Mookabird and Ken Leung also show up. So there's about 10 or so people on this beach. But over the course of the day, things start getting weird. A body washes up on the beach of a young woman who drowned the previous night and was accompanying the rapper Aaron Pierre. And gradually other things start happening and they eventually work out that for every half hour on this beach it is basically a year of somebody's life so these small kids are rapidly aging and eventually turn into teenagers alex wolf thomasin mckenzie and eliza scanlon and Every time they try to leave this beach, there's an enormous amount of pain and people black out. And when you try to swim, that doesn't work either. So they are trapped on this beach, rapidly aging, and basically a day on this beach is going to eventually encompass the entire span of 
their lives. So what is going on? Can they escape? And what will happen when they escape? When a kid who was six years old this morning is now a teenaged Alex Wolf with none of the learning, none of the expectations. And yeah, issues arise. And I, I think this is a, a, an interesting film. I was certainly intrigued by it. It's not your typical kind of Shyamalan film, although I think his days of making films solely for the twist ending are somewhat behind him. But it's not really his kind of film, or it doesn't seem to be. But it does have a really interesting concept. I mean, the idea of being on this luxurious tropical beach and aging throughout the course of the day is a really fascinating thing to explore. And then asking the questions, what happens when you do grow up? I mean, when Gail Gossip and Alan Vicky Creeps, their son was six years old this morning and has now grown up to be Alex Wolf. And when Rufus Sewell and Abby Lee's daughter was five years old this morning and has now grown up to be Eliza Scanlon, what happens when they're left alone together? And you know, the idea of being physically very mature, but not having the mental capacity to understand that and to understand anything that's going on is really fascinating. And it does ask those questions. And it raises other questions as well. And it it gradually starts to emerge, you know, maybe there's a purpose for this. Maybe there's a reason for this. Not only is there something really weird going on, maybe it's been designed to happen that way. And the more time goes along, the more we spend with that, the more we start to learn these things. I, I think it was notable when the first time we are introduced to Nikki Amuka Bird, she's just another guest having breakfast at this hotel, but she then has a grand mal epileptic seizure. And we've already had a conversation that it appears that Vicky Creeps and Gail Garspinal are on the verge of splitting up, and one of the reasons for that might be some kind of medical issue. So that's been put in your mind, that there's medical stuff going on here. And there's also societal stuff going on there. I mean, when this attractive young woman washes up on the beach having drowned the night before, Rufus Sewell instantly assumes that this black rapper played by Aaron Pierre is a murderer and starts being incredibly aggressive towards him. I mean, casual, overt racism just out there in the open. And, you know, he's arrogant enough, you know, I am the chief of surgery at this hospital back home, so I am an important person. And that arrogance says, you know, I can basically get away with anything. I can be openly bigoted and aggressive and threatening even because I am the big, powerful white man with the trophy wife who is completely obsessed with her image, shares everything on Instagram, and you can see you know, at the beginning of the day her daughter's four years old and is already starting to succumb to this image obsession that her mother had, which causes problems when she eventually grows up to be Eliza Scanlon in you know, a couple of hours. 
But everybody has their own issues, has their own problems. But as the film progresses, you start seeing hints here and there of, of what something along the lines of what this film is about, what the intention was to have these people on this page. And it's reasonably clever. And having all these people play differing attitudes, I mean, having a year or two in a couple of hours doesn't really make much difference when you're already in your 30s or 40s. But when you're six, you very rapidly you turn into 16. And having those juvenile attitudes within the bodies of grown-up people I think Thomasin McKenzie in particular is excellent in this film. I've loved her for so long since I first saw her in Leave No Trace and then she was brilliant in Jojo Rabbit as well. She's in the new Edgar Wright film as well, or more specifically the second Edgar Wright film that will be released this year and I'll be talking about the first one later. But one Night in Soho was delayed from last year and Thomasin McKenzie is in that and that looks fascinating. But yeah, Thomasin McKenzie is awesome and I do want to highlight her in particular for the acting ability she puts on screen as this girl at the beginning of the film is 11 years old, is very awkward. She's a little bit too old to be playing tag with the younger kids, but a little bit too young to be playing beach volleyball with the teenagers. And, you know, this young adolescent girl played by Alexa Swinton is brilliant. And then to see that progress into the more mature body of Thomasin McKenzie, but still have the attitude of that awkward 11-year-old, I think she does that very, very well. So, yeah, lots of interesting acting going on here. As is common with much of this type of high concept film the actual explanation for what is going on why people are rapidly aging isn't all that satisfying all that believable but there is something of a twist which is actually kind of interesting uh, and i did appreciate but I do have a bit of an issue with the way this film has been directed. There are many, many times throughout this film where M. Night Shyamalan uses various camera trickery and unusual angles, unusual shots. And sometimes I think he goes too far. I mean, there's a lot of rotating camera here. There's a lot of panning shots. There's a lot of tracking shots. And sometimes these panning shots work. I mean, like there's one where you're panning from one end of the beach to the other, and by the time you've panned back to the original thing, you know, people have aged, people have grown, things have happened. So yeah, that's a justifiable use of a panning shot. That's in that short amount of time it's taken to pan up and pan back, something really dramatic has happened. And there's another scene you're going back and forth to the shoreline, to the surf on this beach you're going down and coming back and your know, things have happened so sometimes it works but not all the time and i think these techniques and tricks are used too often it feels to me like m night Shyamalan was a little bit too afraid of the fact that essentially what this film is 
is about a dozen people just on a beach. And he needed to have all this flashy camera movements and flashy angles. Say, look, be interested. This is visually arresting, isn't it? And I don't honestly think he needs it. I mean, your story is a dozen people on a beach. Live with it. Just shoot them. I mean, yes, it might be a little bit mundane, a little bit dull, but that's the story. You know, the fact that these people are rapidly aging, that's what we need to focus on. So just showing these different people at different stages of growth at different ages, that would be enough. You don't need to have these wacky rotating cameras and tracking shots. It, I find it unnecessary. I found it too flashy for its own good. And while I do like some of the directions that the plot goes in, I mean, it wasn't the, the reasoning behind it that I was expecting, but it is quite clever, it is quite novel. The way it has been introduced, I don't think entirely works. I mean, it's one of those foolish things. You, you, you think about it you know, a couple of hours or a couple of days later, and you think, hang on a minute, that bit doesn't make sense. And one of those things happened to me when I realised that, as I said, we are introduced to Nikki Amuka Bird's character when she has a grand mal epileptic seizure. And it struck me sometime later after I'd watched the film, hang on a minute, that shouldn't have happened. So, yeah, there's bits here and there which don't make logical sense, but in this kind of high concept film that does happen that is one of the the pitfalls you have to navigate through and m night Shyamalan does a decent enough job of navigating through it but it's reasonably clever very well acted i particularly think that thomas and mckenzie is excellent at portraying the the juvenile 11 year old within the mature body of thomas and mckenzie and I think it's a decent enough film, albeit one which has been directed in an overly flashy style. So for me, Old is not classic Shyamalan, and there hasn't been classic Shyamalan for quite some time, but it is an okay film. And for me, Old is a solid meh. Next up is the Danish film Riders of Justice which is written and directed by Anders Thomas Jensen, who has an interesting career. He has a background in making very dark, very absurdist films when he directs for himself, but also collaborates with other people frequently. I mean, this film was a collaboration with Nikolai Arcel, one of the guys behind the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo films and he's also worked a lot with Susanna Beer. He co-wrote Susanna Beer's Breakout Brothers and also co-wrote Susanna Beer's two Oscar nominated films in the foreign language category After the Wedding in In a Better World. And in a Better World also won the Oscar. And Anders Thomas Jensen has been nominated three times for Best Short Film at the Oscars and has won once. So he's got some respect on his name, but when he writes and directs films himself, they tend to be very dark and very absurdist. His most highly critically praised film before this was a film called Man and Chicken 
which is a very absurd, surreal, dark film. But it did get some international praise, as has this film, Riders of Justice, in which Mads Mikkelsen plays a soldier who is on active duty in Afghanistan. But he's then told that his wife and daughter have been involved in a train crash and his wife has died. So he instantly goes back to Denmark to take care of his teenage daughter, Andrea Heik Gaderberg. As Mads Mikkelsen is trying and spectacularly failing to deal with his grief and his anger, he is approached by a man, Nikolai Lee Cass, who was on the train that crashed and actually gave up his seat for Mads Mikkelsen's wife to use. And in therefore, the wife died and not Nikolai Lee Cass. Nikolai Lee Cass feels very guilty about this, and because he is a mathematician who absolutely refuses to believe in coincidence to the extent that he says at one point if you give me enough data i can predict the future it's all data it's all connected he has come to the conclusion that this particular train accident because it killed a particular person was not an accident. It was actually an assassination attempt. And Nikolai Lee Cass and his oddball friends, Lars Briegman and Nicholas Bro, go to Mads Mikkelsen and persuade him, look, the people behind this train crash which killed your wife and traumatised your daughter was this motorcycle gang called the Riders of Justice. And once Mads Mikkelsen is told this, he goes on a bloody quest of vengeance intending to wipe out this motorcycle gang who he has been convinced is the cause of his wife's death. And looking on from the sideline, horrified, is his teenage daughter, Andrea Hike Gaderberg, who can't stop her father from going off the deep end. And channeling his grief into incredibly unhealthy avenues. The weird thing that I wasn't necessarily expecting about Riders of Justice is that, to some degree, it is like one of those films that Alejandro González Iñárritu used to make. The kind of films that say, everything is connected, isn't it beautiful, this majestic tapestry which stretches all over the world. You know, things like Amores Peros or Beautiful or Babel, those kinds of films. The weird thing is that this film opens on a scene in Estonia where an old man wants to buy a bicycle for his niece for Christmas in Estonia. And that one incident trying to buy a bicycle in Estonia eventually leads to Mads Mikkelsen's wife dying in this train crash through very 
understandable means. I mean, you know, this thing leads to this thing leads to this thing. But because Nikolai Lee Cass is so convinced that coincidence doesn't exist, he can't accept that it's just random happenstance and convinces himself and convinces his oddball friends to go to Mads Mikkelsen's house and say, we need to take out this motorcycle gang. And because Mads Mikkelsen is a trained soldier and drowning in grief and alcohol and cigarettes, he goes ahead and does it. And yeah, it's a jet, jet black film, but it has this level of absurdity to it that is a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, eventually all these people just move in to Mads Mikkelsen's house with various explanations as to why they're there to explain it to Mads Mikkelsen's daughter, Andrea Pike-Gaderberg. You know, she mistakes some of them for psychologists. And these scenes where this clearly very, very damaged man, Lars Brigman, is acting like a psychologist. You know, I've been to hundreds of hours of psychotherapy. I know what I'm doing. And then he goes ahead and makes everything a thousand times worse. And Andrew Heitgaderberg's boyfriend, his parents are psychologists. So he's also putting his two cents in with secondhand pop psychology. And this is exactly the wrong thing to do for Mads Mikkelsen because he is you know, a man's man. He has this very masculine, very military attitude. Things have happened. My wife is dead and gone. We need to accept that. We need to move on. I'm not going to go to therapy despite the fact his daughter clearly, clearly needs it, and frankly, he does as well. But he has this idea that that's not going to help. I'm just going to you know, bury everything and just drown myself in alcohol and cigarettes, which doesn't help anybody. And eventually, you know, given this outlet, when Nikolai Lee Cass approaches him, all right, so I'm just going to go and murder this entire motorcycle gang. And it's just not healthy. And the grief and the rage that Mads Mikkelsen is showing, it is heartbreaking to see, but also played really weirdly and played very bizarrely. I mean, eventually, not only do we have these three weirdos, each of whom have very distinct, very deep traumas of their own, but eventually a Ukrainian rent boy moves in with them as well, which is weird, but kind of makes sense in the context of the film. I mean, Everybody here is traumatised. I mean, Nikolai Lee Cass has a withered arm, and eventually we learn the story behind that and why he is so obsessed with the idea that coincidence doesn't happen. Nicholas Bro appears to be somewhere on the autistic spectrum, although he has violent tendencies which aren't typical for autistic people. So he's neurologically atypical, I think is the best way to describe him. And Lars Brigman clearly has deep, deep-seated trauma from his childhood. I mean, really bad issues from his past. And these are the people who are going to help this grief-stricken soldier. Well, they're not, are they? I mean, it's just going to make things worse. And this cohort of people, it's getting to the stage where I actually recognise most of the cast just from the trade without looking them up on. IMDb or anything. And Mads Mikkelsen, Nikolai Lee Cass, and Nicholas Bro have all worked repeatedly with Anders Thomas Jansen. 
so it's, it's almost a repertory company of Anders Thomas Jensen, but each of them have complicated and traumatised people. And just piling on everything and you know, weird things happening, weird coincidences happening. I mean, there's there are coincidences. I mean, basically, shit happens. Coincidences do happen. And there's also a large slice of luck, which eventually becomes part of this film as well. The absurdity and the randomness of existence is, I think, what this film is going for. I mean, it's like early in Yaratu, like Amores Peros or Babel, but directed with a sick, twisted absurdism that is one of those things that you laugh at and you really don't think you should be laughing at it. I mean, that is just so bad, but it's also kind of funny. And it's also kind of heartfelt. I mean, these are damaged people, and to some degree, they find community and connection with each other. Yes, in unhealthy ways. Yes, in ways which you can't 100% get behind, to the extent that the somewhat happy ending that this film comes to the conclusion this film comes to i don't believe there is any conceivable way that happy an ending could have happened naturally in the course of this film so i'm pretty damn sure that's a fantasy sequence in one of two ways so yeah it's that kind of film where nobody gets out clean nobody is innocent everything is up for debate and everything kind of sucks and you're just going to have to deal with the fact that i am dealing with my grief and my rage in this really unhealthy way of slaughtering this entire motorcycle gang so yeah i actually kind of like riders of justice it's certainly not going to be for everybody's taste it's a jet jet black absurdist slice of comedy it's incredibly violent there are things in it which you cannot morally justify at all but i still found myself very very entertained so i think i'm actually going to give riders of justice a yay it's not going to be for everybody but it was for me and this kind of dark twisted absurdism it actually connected with me, and I do recommend it. So for me, Riders of Justice, currently available in cinemas, is, for me, a yay. Home movies. The Green Sea is an Irish low-budget independent film, which is the feature-length debut, as writer and director, of Randall Plunkett. And Randall Plunkett has a different name. He is also the 21st Baron of Dunsany. He's an Irish aristocrat and is also the great-grandson of Lord Dunsany, the fantasy author from the first half of the 20th century, whose book The King of Elfland's Daughter is considered one of the foundational texts of high fantasy as we know it. He was a generation before Tolkien, and Tolkien openly admitted that he was influenced by Dunsany, as were other people like Lovecraft and Howard and Yeats and Arthur C. Clarke. 
fantasy literature as we know it would be very, very different without Lord Dunsany, the early 20th century writer. And Randall Plunkett is his great-grandson and has inherited his title. And he makes movies. This is a small-scale, low-budget film with a very small cast in which an American author, played by Catherine Isabel, the awesome Catherine Isabel, who will forever and always be known for starring in Ginger Snaps, but has had a very impressive and rather prolific career, mostly in Canadian television. Since then, she also starred in the film American Mary. She had a recurring role on Hannibal. But Catherine Isabel is awesome. But she plays a novelist who has secreted herself in remote rural Ireland and is supposed to be working on her second novel. Six years after her first novel was a gigantic success and changed her career trajectory from what she was doing, which was being the singer in a thrash metal band. So this tattooed heavily drinking author with terrible writer's block is being belligerent and being a prior for the local community in this cottage in the middle of Ireland. And one day, whilst driving drunk back from the local town, she runs over a teenage runaway played by Hazel Dupe. And feeling somewhat guilty and somewhat responsible for this teenage runaway, despite wallowing in self-pity and vodka, Catherine Isabel takes in this young girl and looks after her, and this girl starts cleaning the house and hanging out with Catherine Isabel, and there's a bond that forms between these two people. But this is a strange girl who refuses to give her name. And when Catherine Isabel starts writing her new novel, this girl becomes a character in the book. So what is going on? Who is this young girl? And what influence is she having on this very traumatised, very problematic author who is hurtling towards self-destruction in the middle of rural Ireland? So I watched the trailer for this film and I thought, oh look, there's an Irish independent film, and hang on a minute, that's Catherine Isabel, she's awesome, this looks interesting. And the trailer made it look like a, a kind of a mind-bending thing, I mean, who is this girl, is she even there, is she a figment of Catherine Isabel's imagination, is it the latest book she's writing coming to life? Because there's a bit in the trailer where, you know, as she's writing we see Hazel Dupe, and then yeah, Hazel Dupe is actually there, so... We go into this film, or at least I go into this film, and I think I was supposed to go into this film, thinking, is this girl actually there? I mean, that's the fundamental thing which I think was raised by the trailer and the general premise for this film. And as the film progresses, as it goes along, that idea, that intention, seemed to be where the film was going. I mean, as I've said before, I can usually spot this kind of thing coming, and all the signs were there. Hazel Dupe doesn't have a name. She's only ever referred to as The Kid. 
Catherine Isabel is the only person who definitively sees and talks to the kid during the course of the film. Whenever Catherine Isabel does interact with the kid, she's usually blackout drunk. And to be fair, throughout the majority of the film, Catherine Isabel is blackout drunk, so that's not too much of a thing. But all the signs were pointing to the fact that Hazel Dupe is not there and is a figment of the imagination. I mean, whether this is a psychotic break, whether it is the character she is writing coming to life in some way, whether it is her own traumatic backstory, because we keep getting flashes here and there of Catherine Isabel's past, and there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of shocked expressions, there's a lot of hands covered in blood. So something clearly very, very bad has happened to Catherine Isabel in the past, and there is a reason why she is a pariah in the local town, why her car gets graffitied when she goes into town. There is a reason why Catherine Isabel is drowning herself in self-destruction. And this all leads or led me, and I think I was designed to be led down the path, that Hazel Dupe isn't there physically. But as it turns out, that's not where this film goes. It turns out that this is one of those films where we think the protagonist of the film is Catherine Isabel, but to some degree the protagonist is actually Hazel Dupe. And the switch happens so gradually that I basically didn't see it. And quite honestly, I don't think Randall Plunkett is a good enough filmmaker as either director or writer to pull off this kind of misdirection. I mean, there is, from what I can remember of this film, and I don't want to particularly remember this film, one moment where I thought, oh, that's unusual. I mean, Hazel Dupe reacts in a very unusual and unexpected way to coffee. And I thought, huh, that's odd. That's a moment. But that's the only moment where we think that Hazel Dupe has other things going on in this film. And really, we still think it's a story of self-destruction and possibly mental illness from Catherine Isabel's point of view. You know, the self-destructive author who has traumas in her past, who can't move on from those traumas, despite the fact that you know, the, the nice garage owner in town, Dermot Ward, is possibly hinting that, hey, oh, you're attractive. Oh, and I kind of remember you from when you were in that thrash metal band. This is cool. Do you maybe want to go on a date? And, yeah, Catherine Isabel possibly maybe might want to do that. But equally, she is so troubled and so traumatised by these things which happened in her past. And even in the present day, she occasionally has dispassionate, somewhat problematic sexual encounters as well. So... This is a troubled woman, and we think it's all about her, but it isn't. I mean, and I guess I should have put a spoiler warning on this, but I don't really think you should watch this film anyway. But it really is about Hazel Dupe in the end. And that twist happens so rapidly that it wasn't like, oh, wow, that, that's cool. It's like, huh, really? This is where we're going? I mean, when you know the third character on the poster that we see, I mean, the so-called collector, played by Michael Pahl, 
shows up and you know puts a little bit of a, a mystical supernatural spin on it i mean that's the point where you think oh yeah something else is going on here there's external forces at work but when he does show up he shows up in such a way that we're still not entirely clear what's going on and what the plot of the film is i mean even after having watched the film i'm still not entirely sure what the fuck was going on it's really not clear and yes i suppose you want it to be mystical and ambiguous but a little bit of help particularly when we spent so much of the film focused on Catherine isabel that the fact it actually turns out to be hazel dupe is you know, I, i'm sure that randall plunkett thought it was misdirection haha you thought it was this but actually it's this i'm pretty sure he thought it was misdirection i just thought it was a cheat i thought you put so much energy and effort into making it this the self-destructive author story and then it's this mystical thing with this strange girl without a name and it didn't work and i still don't know what the hell is going on so yeah I was curious about this. Uh, I do want to find and promote these tiny independent films. And sometimes you come up against a dud, and this is a dud. I don't think Randall Plunkett is a good enough filmmaker to pull this off. I find it very notable that until I put my four-star review on IMDb, and three of those stars are purely for the acting performance of Catherine Isabel, but one of the other positive reviews is from Michael Pahl, the star of the film. And one of the other 10-star reviews is from somebody who signed up for an account two days before the DVD release and then hasn't done anything since on IMDb. So that's not suspicious at all, is it? But yeah, I put a four-star review on IMDb and that's what I feel about this film. It's just not good enough. It doesn't make sense. It thinks it's being very, very clever, but they just don't have the skill to pull it off. I mean, the production values are pretty low, which is absolutely not an issue, but I mean, it's just one other thing to pile on the issues that this film has. It's just not good enough. It looked interesting, and yes, Catherine Isabel remains absolutely awesome, but this film is not. It's not worth it. And for me, The Green Sea, which you can find on streaming platforms, is a nay. Netflix and chill. The Waterman is the directorial debut of David Ayelowo. And as is so often the case, or as quite often seems to happen, originally he was just slated to star in this film and produce it but then when the original director dropped out he was persuaded to take the reins so he ended up directing his debut feature film it is based on a script by first-time writer emma needow rather surprisingly this is not based on an existing property it feels very much like a ya novel adaptation but as far as I can tell, it's a completely original script. And is one of those films that was originally intended to have a proper cinematic release, 
and indeed eventually did end up having a small cinematic release in the United States, but internationally it has been released onto Netflix. It tells the story of an 11-year-old boy, Lonnie Chavis, who has moved with his family, father David Ayello and mother Rosario Dawson, to rural forested Oregon, where Lonnie Chavis is struggling to fit in. Not only is he one of the seemingly very, very few black people in this rural part of Oregon, his mother is also gravely ill. And because his ex-military father, David Ielo, wants to keep a stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff, he's not actually being told specifically what's going on, which is just making things worse. He spends his time drawing and researching for a graphic novel he is writing and constantly borrowing mystery books from the local bookshop run by Jessica Ayello, David Ayello's wife. But he is an artistic, sensitive soul who really isn't understood by his stern former Navy father. Whilst riding around town on his bike, he starts hearing an urban legend for this remote part of Oregon about the Waterman, particularly from crazy old undertaker Alfred Molina and a 17-ish-year-old homeless girl, Amia Miller, who sells stories of the Waterman to the local kids for a dollar. And after an argument with his stern father, Lonnie Chavis runs away, determined to find the waterman who lives in the dense forest just up the mountain from where they live. So he persuades the rather reluctant 17-year-old Amia Miller to go away with him, and she, possibly thinking, okay, I can just steal his money and leave him in the woods, agrees to go along. So these two kids go off into the woods in search of the waterman, and once David Yellowo realises that his son has run away, he gets the local sheriff, Maria Bello, involved, and they head off into the woods after them, with the added problem that there is a gigantic forest fire just over the mountain. So can these kids survive? In the wilderness alone, can they survive the impending forest fire and can they reunite with their families, however messed up they may be? And when I first saw the trailer for this, I thought, okay, it looks like a little bit of a variation on a monster cause. A young boy using imagination and fantasy to cope with the grave illness of his mother, and going off into the woods in search of this mythical creature who is supposedly immortal and has the power to cure people. It seemed like that kind of thing. And that is largely what it is. I mean, it, it is about grief and dealing with trauma 
in different ways. And in differing ways, I think both David Yellowo and his son Lonnie Chavis are dealing with the grave illness of Rosario Dawson in very, very unhealthy ways. So I think that is definitely there. I also think it's about the power of storytelling. The idea that in this little town there is this urban legend, this myth of this immortal man who's lived in the forest for centuries and has the power to cure people. And when you are so desperate to believe something, you will believe anything, including anything that's being told to you by a 17-year-old runaway who is selling stories for a dollar. I mean, she is making money through the power of storytelling. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, an ancient bardic kind of thing, almost. I find it interesting that instead of, you know, panhandling or stealing or shoplifting or whatever, although she does do, occasionally do those things, this runaway Amia Miller is primarily, or seemingly, is primarily making her money through storytelling. And I think that was very significant. I think to some degree it's also about an outsider. I mean, this seems to be one of the only black families in this small Oregon town. I find it very notable that frequently Rosario Dawson is wearing that African cloth. I think it's called Kente. Yeah, very vibrant colours in this pretty, misty, rainy, Oregonian wilderness. And Amia Miller herself is also an outsider. I mean, she's living on the fringes of society. She's living on a tent in an abandoned old factory. And you can pretty easily work out why this 17-year-old girl is living on her own in a tent in a factory on the edge of town. But, of course, that doesn't get revealed until right near the end. But by that point, I think the majority of the audience, or at least a lot of the audience, would have got there already. So I do think it is about outsiders. And linked to that, I think it's also very much about problematic relationships with fathers. Not only does Amia Miller seemingly have issues with her father, or the audience assumes that Amia Miller has issues with her father, Lonnie Chavis does as well. I mean, here is this artistic boy who is always drawing. and. He has a father who is stern and overly protective. And there's a very, very telling scene where, I mean, it's the summer holidays, and David Iyelowo wakes up his son very early in the morning and says, hey, kid, let's go and throw a ball about. You know, let's be father-son together. And in doing so, he knocks over some ink and destroys the latest art that his son has been doing. I mean, he just does not understand, he does not get his son. Which eventually leads to the argument that they have, you know, the, the harsh word said, and, and Lonnie Chavis runs away to find the waterman. So it, it, it's got all this stuff about problematic father-son relationships as well. And the fact that this 11-ish-year-old kid, Lonnie Chavis, is an artist also helps with the whole ideas about imagination and storytelling, but it also adds to the visual language of this film, because occasionally we have animated inserts for this film. 
telling the story of the Waterman. You know, this urban legend, when the exposition happens, I mean, primarily from Alfred Molina, or initially from Alfred Molina, the story of the Waterman is animated using the style that this 11-year-old artist has been using. And these animated sequences are very well done, they're very beautiful, and add a really interesting visual element to the film as a whole. And I do think it's interesting that David Yellow's reaction to his son notwithstanding, in the modern world, in the modern era, it's not all that unusual for geeky, quote-unquote, pursuits, like being a graphic artist, like comic book reading. That's more or less the norm. That's more or less the mainstream. And I found it refreshing that, yeah, he's a drawer, he's an artist, he's imaginative, that's just who he is, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, being encouraged by the local bookstore owner, Jessica Yellowo, and I, I do wonder <laughs> if David Yellowo cast his wife before or after he agreed to direct. But she's a fantastic actress anyway, I mean, primarily on the stage, but she is a fantastic actress. But I did find that rather cute. But yeah, I mean, she, this 11-year-old boy is being encouraged by the local bookstore owner, and not a great deal is made of it. And, you know, eventually there's uh, some certain level of reconciliation between father and son, and certain level of understanding between father and son. And yeah, the kids and artists deal with it. And I do appreciate the fact that in the modern day, that is not seen as anything too subversive or too outside the norm. And yeah, I do appreciate it. And the animated elements of this film do work very, very nicely. And in general, I think The Waterman does work as a film. It is one of those films where too many people don't ask pretty basic, pretty standard questions for the sake of plot. Lonnie Chavis follows Amia Miller into the wilderness with not really not enough information. I mean, yes, she seems to know what she's doing, but she's 16, 17 years old. And desperate though he is, I think Lonnie Chavis should have asked more questions sooner. And there's other things as well. I mean, things just don't get brought up, don't get addressed for the sake of plot. The interactions between Rosario Dawson and Maria Bello, the sheriff, uh, and law enforcement in general, that happens in a very unusual way. I mean, too often, although not really to the film's detriment, but too often, basic fundamental stuff just isn't asked or answered. And that's a little bit of an issue. I mean, one thing that did stand out for me, I mean, it's a generally family-friendly film. I mean, it's aimed at a family-friendly audience. But one thing that did stand out to me is here we have this 11-year-old boy who has disappeared. The father openly admits that the night before they had an argument. And yet, the sheriff does not ask David Ayello uncomfortable questions, you know, what did you do with your son? 
that would be the automatic natural reaction for any law enforcement. And unfortunately, it has to be said, it would be the natural reaction for a white sheriff to have to a black father is you did something to your son, didn't you? And the fact that isn't once brought up, not even in a line of dialogue, it isn't once brought up, what did you do with your son? Did you do something to your son? That did stand out. But I do appreciate the fact that this is a family-friendly film, so maybe that would have changed the tone a little bit, but it did stand out to me personally as I was watching it. So yeah, not perfectly done. There are some inelegant things. There are a couple of head-scratching things. But the fantastical elements, the animation certainly works. And the, the themes of dealing with grief and dealing with family dynamics which don't always sit comfortably... I think there is enough here that The Waterman is pretty good. I mean, it's certainly not the worst family-friendly type film I've ever seen. It's not the best either. I mean, I think The Waterman ends up being a solid meh, and it is available on Netflix. Also on Netflix is the Polish thriller Primetime which is the directorial feature-length debut of Jakub Piontek and stars Bartosz Bielenia from the excellent film Corpus Christi as a young man who on New Year's Eve 1999 goes into a TV studio armed and demands that his message be broadcast to Poland. He takes hostage the host of this show, Magdalena Poplavska, and a security guard, Andrzej Klack, and the negotiating team, the police, try and figure out what this young man wants. Is he going to kill anybody? What message does he want to spread? Do we dare put him on air? Can we put him on air? And these hard decisions are being made by the commander of the police, Dobromir Dometsky, and negotiators Cesare Kaczynski and Monica Frychik. And the connection to this hostage film studio is being kept open by producer Margrata Hajewska. So what does this young man want? Is his message going to be broadcast on New Year's Day 2000? How many people are going to survive the night? And this film has been made in a really interesting way. It's largely a one-set film. Almost all of this film takes place in this one TV studio and the production gantry above it it's very limited locations but manages to get a lot of stuff in it and it also manages to have a lot of visual 
Q's extra to it, because throughout the course of the film, we are given snapshots of what was going on on television on New Year's Day 1999, you know, leading up to the millennium, all the different things that are going on, you know, concerts with Boney M, addresses from the Polish president, people building snowmen, young Polish people complaining about the lack of prospects in Poland, and repeated references to the Millennium Bug. And it struck me that we have now reached the point where Y2K is an historical event, and there's probably an entire generation of people who might well be watching this film who didn't live through it and didn't know about the Millennium Bug and how terrified certain people were of it. So yeah, that was another one of those things that made me feel really old, that people have to be taught about the Millennium Bug. But anyway, this is a solid hostage thriller, a one-location thriller, and Bartosz Bielenia is absolutely brilliant as this young man who feels the need to take hostages and threaten to kill them in order to get his message across. It's a powder keg, a pressure cooker of an environment, particularly when the people outside the room, outside the room with this armed young man, the arrogant host who thinks she's far too good for this call-in game show that she's been asked to host on New Year's Eve, and the security guard who everybody overlooks because he's just a security guard. Outside that pressure cook environment, everybody has different opinions, and basically everybody's doing it wrong. The police commander is inexperienced and very impatient, which is the worst thing to do in this kind of situation. The senior negotiator consistently seems to make the wrong call don't go in at this particular point, say that particular thing, and he always makes the wrong decision. The junior negotiator isn't listened to because A, she's a complete rookie, and B, she's a woman. And the producer, the TV producer who's still in the gantry, is just trying to film everything. Yes, this is a life-and-death hostage situation where my star presenter might end up dead at any minute, but My God, this is awesome footage. We need to film everything. So, I mean, there's a little bit of a found footage thing which eventually brings into this as well because we know that what is going on in this studio is being recorded and eventually there's people outside recording as well and trying to capture everybody's reaction to it. So it's a little bit found footage. It's a little bit network. I mean, let's exploit this for the sake of ratings. I mean, we're not broadcasting right now, but if we get it on tape, We can eventually broadcast this, and my God, will people watch? To some degree, the show must go on. I mean, yes, people might die, but it's still a show. And yeah, I mean, this is the thing which I think is one of the themes of the film. It is the power and the seduction of being on television, of 
getting yourself on television. And that show is kind of part of the plot as well, because these three people are in a locked television studio, so all the communication, all the visual cues are through the cameras. So when Bartosz Bielania doesn't want to be seen, he just moves behind the cameras and nobody can see him. There are quite lengthy conversations where the people in authority, the police, can't see him because he's simply gone to the back wall of the studio underneath the gantry. So they can't see him. They don't know what's going on. And the ideas of line of sight and how a television studio works are used to great effect. And having the constant stream of images from Polish television in the lead-up to the millennium puts everything in context. And we go back to this again and again and again, all this stream of information, this stream of content, which is being shown on these television screens. And I was thinking, yes, we get it. We've established the time and place we are in. Why are you keeping going back? To these pieces of footage and eventually I kind of get it and at this point as I said at the beginning of the show I am now going to go into full-on spoiler territory for the film primetime because I really don't think there's any other way I can talk about this film and give you my full impressions of this film any other way I think these streams of television were not only giving us context for the time and place that this incident is happening in, leading up to the millennium with disaffected Polish youth and the rise of neo-Nazism and the millennium bug. All of that was going on, but it was also giving us potential reasons for Bartosz Bielenia to be doing this. Because ultimately, we never find out what his message was. He never broadcasts it. We as an audience never know what he is. He eventually burns the little piece of handwritten script he's brought with him. We never find out why he did it. Which, personally speaking, I think is a little bit frustrating. And, yeah, I I think... It's okay if we never hear what this message was. I went into this film fully expecting that that might be one of the options that was on the table, that we never find out what this message was. But to not even be given a strong hint as to why Bartosz Bielania did this, I'm not sure that's entirely satisfying. I would have been okay with not knowing what the message was, but I think a general idea of what areas it might be would have helped. I mean, is he a right-wing extremist? Is he a mental patient? Is he a survivalist who thinks the Millennium Bug is going to destroy everything? Did he just want attention? This was the only way he thought he could get it. You know, getting a gun and taking people hostage. We never know. And I do think this constant stream of footage from 
1999. I mean, giving us all these different options as to what it might be, giving us the context of what was going on, the kinds of things that were in the air, in the mind of the people of Poland at that time. I think that's what director Jakob Piontek was trying to do, trying to say. I mean, giving us so many options. I mean, possibly it's this, possibly it's this, possibly it's this. But we only get to see that in retrospect. And this ends up, in my opinion, be making the film a little bit unsatisfying on two different levels. On the one hand, we have this constant, persistent use of footage from 1999, and we don't have an ending. Not having any firm idea as to what Bartosz Bielenia want, what his goal was, I didn't find that very satisfying at all. And I think Jakob Pjonsek thought he was being a lot more clever than he actually was. I don't think this ends up being satisfying. And ultimately, if you have a protagonist who has nothing to say, in my opinion, you also have a film that has nothing to say. And having so many different options, having so many different ideas as to what might be going on, there's too many ideas here. And I ultimately don't think that primetime works particularly well. Yes, I think the acting is excellent, particularly from this damaged young man, Bartosz Bielenia, who was brilliant in the film Corpus Christi as well. And I also think that the arrogant host, Magdalena Poplavska, who is far too good for this little show she's been doing, she doesn't recognise the security guard, even though he has frequently helped her. She breezes in far too late i mean like with minutes to go before she's about to go live on air and just says yeah this is my job this is who i am you know, will you little people piss off i'm the star here but eventually there's a little bit of camaraderie come stockholm syndrome and to a limited degree magdalena poplavska and indeed the security guard andre clack do collaborate with Bartosz Bielania because they do have a certain level of sympathy for him, a certain level of empathy for him. I mean, yes, they're being held at gunpoint, but they can see some of the damage that this young man has been through. I mean, there's a brutally painful scene where Bartosz Bielania's father is brought in to try and talk him down. And that turns out to be one of the many, many bad decisions that the senior negotiator makes. And that conversation, I mean, after that, you can see a certain level of sympathy from these hostages to the person who's holding a gun on them. And at certain points, Magdalena Poplavska actively helps Bartosz Bielania. On one level, if we get this over, maybe I can go home. And on another level, this poor kid, let's just get this over with. So, yeah, I think that balance, that gradual progression that Magdalena Poplavska has, I think is very, very interesting, and I do think she's a good acting performance as well. So the acting is good. The use of the single location is good. The eventual dipping their toe into the water of found footage is good, but I think... If they were going to do that, maybe they should have done that a little bit more. 
you know, have a, a wider thing. You know, this is a TV station. I mean, we need to capture everything. Maybe push that a little bit further, make that a little bit more of the film. But yeah, I mean, it's good, but it's not great. And I personally found the ending immensely frustrating. So for me, great acting though it is, prime time on Netflix only ends up being a pretty low meh. Coming attractions. I still have a really long list of films to get to and not enough time to watch them all. Cinematically, what I am most excited about this week is probably not what everybody else is excited about, or certainly not one of the bigger releases of the week. But this Thursday coming, there is a special event with a satellite Q&A for a particular film, which I have already got a ticket for. It is Edgar Wright's documentary, The Sparks Brothers. And this is a Q&A with Edgar Wright and, I believe, the male brothers as well, which I'm very, very excited for. I mean, Edgar Wright is one of my favourite filmmakers. I really, really like his work. I believe that he finished and completed this documentary after he finished the feature film, which was supposed to come out at the end of last year, One Night in Soho, starring the previously mentioned Thomasin McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. I mean, that looks really, really fascinating. I mean, it looks kind of like Edgar Wright made an out-and-out horror film, or possibly a giallo. It kind of reminds me of that fake trailer that Edgar Wright did for the Grindhouse project that Quentin Tarantino put together. Don't. You'd probably be able to find that on YouTube somewhere, but that is a very, very funny and interesting trailer. And he kind of seems to have made that film or something along those lines. So yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to One Night in Soho at the end of the year. But before then, another Edgar Wright film has been released, and that is this documentary, The Sparks Brothers, which I am very, very interested in. Not just because it has this Q&A attached to it, and I really like Edgar Wright, but also the fact that Sparks was actually one of the few pop acts that my father actually liked. My father was into classical music. I mean, whenever we were driving in the car with him, he always had classic FM on. It was never popular music. I mean, we never had the option of Radio 1 or whatever. It was always, always classical music. There were only three times in my entire life when I went out just with my father to a cultural event. When I was very small, he took me to a performance of Handel's Messiah at Bath Abbey, and I was probably too young to appreciate it. Later, when I was much older, he took me and my foster brother over to the Colston Hall in Bristol. You know, the Colston Hall named after that guy who they tore the statue down off, but it's the Concert Hall in Bristol uh, for a concert which included things like Rhapsody in Blue. And the only cinema trip I ever took with my dad alone was, again, me and my foster brother accompanied him to one of those cultural broadcasts which end up in cinemas, seeing 
Placido Domingo performing in Nabucco. So yeah, I mean, my dad was very much into classical music. He was not into pop music. He was not really into film. But one thing he was into, bizarrely, was Sparks. So I kind of got curious about it. And I do like the music of Sparks, what little of it I've heard. And the trailer for this documentary about Sparks makes it look like it's got enough of a nod and a wink and enough of an inventive filmmaking style that it does look like a really cool documentary. So I'm very much looking forward to the Sparks Brothers documentary for a number of reasons. As well as the two big cinematic releases of the week, the two blockbusters of the week, we have The Suicide Squad, James Gunn's attempt to get that franchise off the ground, with, of course, Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, but also John Cena in it. And other people like Peter Capaldi I've seen in the trailer. I think Idris Elba as well. I mean, yeah, it's got an interesting cast, and we're going to have to see if The Suicide Squad is any better than Suicide Squad. I hate it when film companies do that, so you try to, A, make a sequel title that's a little bit too clever, and also, I think, possibly trying to make us forget that Suicide Squad even existed, even though it was financially successful. But anyway, I am really curious about The Suicide Squad, so I will be checking that out. And I will also be checking out Jungle Cruise which is, in many ways, the latest attempt to recapture the Pirates of the Caribbean magic. This is yet another blockbuster movie based around a Disneyland ride. I mean, Jungle Cruise, from what I understand, is a pretty mundane, low-wattage ride at Disneyland. But this turns into a supernatural, big-budget, effects-heavy African Queen ripoff by the looks of it, with The Rock and Emily Blunt going down a mystical river and having to deal with all kinds of CGI monsters. So, yeah, it looks like a lot of fun, and I will be checking out Jungle Cruise. And at the really art house end of the spectrum, cinematically next week is finally the release of a widely critically acclaimed British indie film called Limbo, which has been doing the festival circuit for quite some time now. It actually got nominated for BAFTA Awards and BIFA Awards, the British Independent Film Association Awards as well. It tells the story of a Syrian asylum seeker who, whilst his asylum claim is going through the long, torturous process of being dealt with by the British government, he has been dumped on a tiny remote Scottish island with a handful of other asylum seekers and a lot of quirky locals. So yeah, Limbo does look rather interesting and it is out cinematically this week. On streaming platforms, we still have a couple of films which I was a little bit interested in earlier in the year, but have now shown up on Sky Cinema. So since it's on my Skybox and I don't have to make any effort, I may as well watch them. First, we have the romantic comedy We Broke Up, in which a couple breaks up 
just before they're supposed to go to a destination wedding. So they pretend to still be a couple for this wedding weekend, and hilarity ensues. And there's also a film called Archive, which is directed by one of the visual effects guys who did Moo. And it's one of those small-scale, small-cast films. It looks a little bit like Ex Machina, in which a grief-stricken scientist, played by Theo James, is essentially trying to create an AI cyborg to resurrect his dead wife. And maybe the cyborg doesn't want to be resurrected as the dead wife. And there's also stuff about stealing technology as well. So, yeah, a bit of a cerebral sci-fi in archive, and I am mildly curious about it, or certainly curious enough that now I definitely don't have to pay for it, I will be checking out Archive. I still have downloaded onto my tablet several films from the last random sale that was on on the Google Play Store. We have the Australian film The Greenhouse, in which a woman has to deal with her past by going back in time through a magical greenhouse. There's A Perfect Enemy, in which a young woman confronts an architect in an airport about his past misdeeds. There's Don't Tell a Soul, where two thieving teenagers are the only people who know about a security guard who's trapped in a well in the middle of a forest. So what do they do about that? And there's also Long Weekend, where two 20-something people have a magical connection over a long weekend, but there are mysteries and secrets to be told. There's also the low-budget sci-fi Lapsis, which seems to be a satire metaphor for the gig economy, in which unemployed people are paid not enough money to drag cables through a remote forest, but they may be about to be replaced by robots. There's also Werewolves Within, which looks really fascinating, about a small-town sheriff who has to confront the fact that maybe in his small town there are werewolves. So who is responsible? Who is the werewolf? That looks like fun, and apparently that's based on a video game, which I've never heard of, quite honestly. There's also Giddy Stratospheres, a British indie comedy, very low budget, autobiographical film from a young female writer-director about her past in the mid-2000s indie music scene in London. There's also two Kelsey Grammer films which were released on exactly the same day, which is weird enough that I think I'm going to watch them together, even though they are very, very different films. We have The Space Between, in which he plays a clear avatar for Brian Wilson, a reclusive, genius musician who is trying to be persuaded that hey maybe we should break your contract you're just not worth it anymore and there's also the god committee in which he plays a doctor on a transplant committee who is offered a bribe to give a particular heart to a particular person and how do you deal with the morals and ethics of that situation so that sounds cool and added to the streaming list this week is a film called what we found which looks like kind of a TV movie, actually. 
it looks like a, a small town mystery thriller, but it's got Elizabeth Mitchell in it, who's a, a very talented actress. Basically, we're in Baltimore. A high school girl goes missing, and some of her friends go off into the woods when the police seem unwilling or unable to work out what actually happened. And the town secrets start to be uncovered, or that seems to be what it is. It seems a little bit Stand By Me, a little bit The Mayor of East Town, the TV show, which, by the way, I do also really, really recommend. I mean, this is not a TV podcast, but The Mayor of East Town was excellent. But yeah, what we found does look kind of interesting, so that's been added to the list. On Amazon Prime, we have the weepy true life story, Our Friend, about a man failing to cope with the terminal illness of his wife and a goofy friend moves in and helps them played by jason siegel and there's also jolt which looks absolutely rock stupid but i'm still kind of morbidly fascinated by it in which kate beckinsdale gets so murderously angry that she has to have an electric vest which shocks her back to normality every time the rage comes upon her but when the man she loves is killed, she takes off the vest and goes on a quest of vengeance. Sounds so fucking stupid, but I am therefore morbidly fascinated by Jolt. On Netflix, I still have to get through Eliza Schlesinger's autobiographical film Good on Paper about a relationship she was in with a man who turned out to be an utter liar. There's also the Italian thriller Security about a security guard who maybe holds the secret to a small town's cover-ups when he is the CCTV operator and somebody is accused of rape. There's also the adult animated film America the Motion Picture, made by one of the guys who did Archer, which recasts various figures from American history in kind of a drunk history way, you know, George Washington is a chainsaw-wielding maniac. Thomas Edison is a Chinese woman who can fly thanks to her inventions. Sam Adams is a beer-drinking bro. Abraham Lincoln is desperately searching for the Gettysburg Address. So, yeah, sounds very anarchic, very subversive, but kind of interesting. So I do want to check that out. There's also the Russian comic book adaptation Major Grom Plague Doctor about a maverick St. Petersburg cop who is on the trail of an anarchist mischief maker who wears one of those Plague Doctor masks you know, with the big long beaks. There's also the French superhero-esque film How I Became a Superhero in which a policeman without superpowers has to track down people who do have superpowers, and how does he deal with that? There's also the immensely high-concept German film Blood Red Sky, in which a plane from Germany to the United States is hijacked, but unbeknownst to the hijackers, one of the passengers is a Nosferatu-style vampire. So in an enclosed space, we have terrorists, and a vampire, and that sounds really cool. There's also the Japanese anime Words Bubble Up Like Soda Pop, in which two young people have troubles communicating, 
one only communicates through haiku, one only communicates through online video, one always wears headphones, one always wears a face mask, connect with each other and try and make it work in this crazy mixed up Japanese world. So yeah, that's probably kind of sappy and saccharine, but interesting nonetheless. So I'm curious about words bubble up like soda pop. And coming this week onto Netflix is a film I'm mildly interested in. It's yet another opportunity for Jean-Claude Van Damme to mildly poke fun at himself. It's called The Last Mercenary, and it is a French film in which an ex-Black Ops Special Forces soldier, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, is reluctantly called out of retirement when his son, I think, gets wrapped up in some kind of nefarious schemes and he has to clear his name. Or I think that's what it seems to be. Basically, it's a French film in which Jean-Claude Van Damme just goes through I'm too old for this shit for 90 minutes. But yeah, it looks like it could be kind of fun, so I do want to check out The Last Mercenary, or at least it's been added to the list. Whether I ever get around to it, I don't know. But there's the list. That's what I have coming up, or I intend to have coming up. In the next episode, we will definitely have the cinematic films, The Sparks Brothers, The Suicide Squad, Jungle Cruise, and Limbo. We will almost certainly also have the films which have ended up on Sky Cinema, We Broke Up, and Archive. And more than likely, we'll also have at least the streaming film, The Greenhouse, as well. So, lots of stuff coming up, but for right now, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yane Omer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.